and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you were to do a survey of people that uh, were unchurched or, well, semi-churched maybe, you would ask them what some of the famous stories of your Bible were, and they might say, well, creation, but many of them would ignore that, but they would say the flood. We talked about that this morning. Uh, or we uh, have the story of uh, the parting of the Red Sea, Moses and the Ten Commandments. But sooner or later in that survey, you would uh, come to 1 Samuel 17, where people would say, David and Goliath. I mean, this is a uh, story that is known by the world. They use this as an illustration at times of uh, small time individuals taking on big corporations and they'll say it's a battle of David and Goliath and they'll use this in sporting events to describe uh, events like that. So our world is would think that they're generally familiar with this, that David uh, killed uh, Goliath with a, sling, a slingshot of some kind, but they probably don't understand completely what that is. And, and the problem is, is that for many of us as believers, we've become familiar with the story. And when we become familiar with the story, we don't examine it like we should. In fact, when it comes to this story, and if you were to hear messages preached on uh, these, this passage itself, uh, you would probably hear uh, sermon titles or things like this, and you can go and find them anywhere, of facing your giants. You know, be, be uh, bold in your stand, you know, against the enemy. Five smooth stones to take on problems in your life that stand in your way. I mean, these, these are the type of things that you have. And you might, you know, have been blessed by sermons like that. I can remember hearing sermons like this as a kid and going, okay, well, you know, that's encouraging and, and uh, emboldening as a Christian. But that's not what the story of David and Goliath is about. You go, really? It's not. And I, I'm going to this tonight just kind of walk you through so you can figure out what this story is about. It's not about facing your giants. So we're going to go and do a little bit of work here this evening, but in the end, hopefully you understand exactly what God was intending with this passage to display uh, to his people that would have been reading this story to understand what is going on and perhaps learn something from this about God and what his plans are and what he does. And for us, we need to, first of all, know what the context of 1 Samuel chapter 17 is, what the context surrounding it is, and preferably the section before this. Because 1 Samuel 17 usually is just taken right out of context, story of David and Goliath. But what you have to do is go back and remember the fact that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, there was a search going on. There was a looking for for a new king. You say, why? Twice Saul had defaulted on uh, things that he should have done. Either he did things he wasn't supposed to do, or he delayed in doing what he should have done. 
Regardless of what that, uh, the, those situations were, the kingdom was uh, torn away from him and his family that there was going to be a new king that was after God's own heart. And in 1 Samuel 16, you go through and you look at that story and it's Samuel who's going to anoint a king and he sent to one Jesse who is going to uh, be in the town of Bethlehem and he has eight sons. And we could be familiar with the story, but for time, we're not going to go through all of it. But it's simply this, is that the sons come in for review. And when you get to the first son, when he comes in, in verse number six of chapter 16, it just simply says this, and it came to pass when they were come, the sons had come in, that he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. I mean, you say, well, what would he have been looking for in his king? Well, it was what people oftentimes looked for in a king. It's what they looked for in Saul, a man who was head and shoulders above everybody else. You go, why do you want him to be head and shoulders above everybody else? Because you can see him on a battlefield. They didn't really ride horses back then. They didn't. It was basically everyone was on their feet and you wanted to be able to see him wherever he was at. So if he was head and shoulders above everybody else, you'd go, okay, we can find him on the battlefield. We can see his commands and his direction. Well, that seems to be the indicator here. Samuel just kind of looks at this and goes, wow, this, this is a person that I think could be king. But verse 7, the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature. He's obviously tall. Because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so what happens is, of course, we know the story partially. The review of all seven brothers happens, and there is no statement from God that this is the one, or this is the one, and this is the one. And Samuel asks if there's another one somewhere. And the statement is this, is that uh, verse number 11, Jesse answers and says, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for he will not sit down until he came uh, hither. And he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy and with all of a uh, beautiful countenance. He, he was a young man full of energy and, and was good to look at and of fine form. But that's not what was important. The Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramoth. Now, there is nothing that goes on as far as a loud official ceremony of what has gone on. There's been an anointing of an individual. Uh, there is not really an explanation exactly of what has gone on here, but an anointing has taken place. Okay, you read through the story and you're kind of looking at this and there's not really a statement that this one is going to, yeah, be king. You're just kind of left here and going, okay, but he's anointed, chosen, 
And that was something the kings had, but it was also something the prophets and priests had. So uh, there's no real statement of exactly what's going to go on here. And suddenly the story just kind of delves into another part where Saul is actually one, or David actually ends up playing for Saul, uh, calming him and the like. But that's it. So before this, you have an individual who is a man after God's own heart. God looks at his heart and goes, this is one that will follow me. Regardless of his outward appearance, this is one who's after my own heart. That's the context before this. You got an individual chosen by God, one who loves God, and God says, I've got a purpose for him. But what you then have is this story that is uh, the, the story that magnifies David and his position. You look at verse number one, it says this, the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together uh, at Shokuth, or Shuth, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shokuth and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set battle in array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Now, for us, you go, what did this look like? Well, I'm going to try and get you a picture here. And when I use technology in a sermon, sometimes it doesn't go the way it's planned, but we will see this evening if we can get it. Nope, can't get it. So let me try this again. Because I want you to see what this area looks like because it plays a role in the story itself. It's very important that you understand what goes on here. Let's try again. Okay. That is the Valley of Elah. You have a person who's taken this picture here, and you can look down and see there is a uh, valley, green valley there. On the other side, there is a hillside there. The one side we're looking from is a side the Israelites would have been on. They would have camped there. On the other side, you would have had where the Philistines were at, and you have this little brook running through the middle and a road just kind of driving through there, and that's where this took place. It's kind of like, and, and understand the way that it's set up, and I, you know, I will put a plug in here. You see this, uh, that thing there, BiblePlaces.com. It's a wonderful website. If you ever need pictures of geographical sites and artifacts in the Scripture, you will find it there. Okay? I, I, I turn there often if I need pictures of Bible places. This is a, a good place to see them, artifacts and locations. So I guess that's advertising here this evening. But what you have here is what we might say a natural stadium or amphitheater. You've got the ability of everybody on one side to see what's going on. You have everybody on the other side with the ability to see what's going on. Everybody that's there has a good seat to see what's going to happen on the stage in the valley floor. They're going to see this. And so what you have is this natural stadium where these two sides line up against one another. That's why this setting is given in such detail as to where it's at. 
because they want people to know this is where it was at. And you go, okay, there's this valley and there's this flat space right in the middle, but you have these two sides like bleachers that people can watch what's going on. So this is the setting. Now I will give you one more picture here because there's always the question of what does the brook look like? That's the brook. And you look at that, there's a bunch of students that are there, elementary kids that are there, and there's a bunch of stones in that uh, field, and that's a little fuzzy. I'm going to tighten this up some so you get a little better. But uh, you look at that, lots of nice round stones. Realize that when David picked a stone, it would have probably been as round as it possibly could have been and about the size of a tennis ball. And so he found five of these in this bed of this brook just before this, uh, before he went and found Goliath. And so I'm going to go back to just this picture being on the wall, and you can just imagine the, the scene that is going on here. So the second thing that you need to look at, besides the context and the setting, is to look at the people that are involved in the story. Okay, this is a story. It's a, a story being told by someone that is being inspired by God. But when you read through stories, you always try and find out who the characters are. You just kind of go through and go, okay, who are the characters, the main characters that are part of this? And you would go through, and as you would go through, unquestionably, there are four characters. One of them is Goliath. Okay, unquestionably, one of the main characters. And you'd say, okay, David. Okay, David's a second one. But you have two other characters that play a very major role in the story. One of them is Eliab. That's David's brother. The other one is Saul. They all have important roles in playing and showing forth what the writer is trying to get across. Each one of them play their own role in what's going on. You have Goliath, and you say, who's Goliath? Well, you could simply define him as the person who defies God. That's that's his whole role. He's defying God. And as you read through the story, you will find this word defy throughout. It's a good thing to just kind of mark in your Bible as you go through this story uh, that the word defy is there. Uh, You can go through and start off in verse number 10, and you have Goliath saying, I defy the armies of Israel. And you see then in verse 25, he is, uh, they're talking there as the nation of Israel, that this one is defying Israel. And you have in verse 26 that he is defying the armies of the living God. Now, I, I could give you more of those, but it's understandable that you have this Goliath who is standing up against the armies of Israel and actually standing up against God. And so here you have an individual who doesn't like God, doesn't care about him, and is actually speaking against God. That's the issue here. I mean, this is why this word defy is coming up over and over and over again. The writer's emphasizing this is a person who doesn't like God and stands up against him. And so as you go through the the story, you have Goliath who stands up and defies the armies of Israel and is really defying God. When we get to the statement that David and Goliath say to each other, you're going to find him cursing God. And that's probably an important role. He's just going to sow his defiance openly 
not just against the armies of Israel, but against God himself. You've got a second character by the name of Saul, and I'm going to put him this way. He's not one who defies God like Goliath. He is one who delays response. Out of anyone that should have been at battle with Goliath, it should have been Saul. You know why? He's head and shoulders above everybody else. And you have this very large man who comes out. You go, how tall was he? Well, he was, as it says in the scriptures, he is about six and a half cubits, which would mean he's about nine feet high. And you have to remember populations back then were kind of shorter than they are as they've dug up skeletons and the like. So uh, here you got Saul who's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's probably not huge, but still he's the one that you would expect to go out and do battle. Goliath is described in uh, verse number four as a champion. Okay, he's an individual who is chosen between two. He is the individual the Philistines have chosen uh, to be their representative. Well, nation of Israel's got their own representative, Saul. He's their king. He's been chosen because of his height and his stature. He ought to be the one that goes out, but he doesn't. And you say, well, why is that? We're going to look at why it is. But he delays his response. You have a third character in this story as you go through, and David finally shows up to battle. He's not there because he's not fighting. He's not of the age to be called up and to serve. Probably not over the age of 20, which was typical when a person would go to battle. That's why when you had people in the Exodus counted 20 years and up, those were people who were going to be soldiers. So David's younger than 20. He hasn't been called up to serve in battle. But he shows up at battle. And when he does, he's got his brother who is, we would simply say this, he's one who despises the godly. Okay, He doesn't defy. He's just not happy with them. And you say, how do you know that? Well, just look at his response in verse 28. When David shows up and he's just simply saying, how is it this person's defying the nation of Israel? Nothing's going on. How is this possible if this is the case? Shouldn't somebody go out there and take care of this? What happens to the person who does this? Verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David's response is this, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Is there not something to stand up for that we should? Well, here you've got a brother who is one that was not chosen by God, was not anointed by the prophet of God. So there is probably some sibling rivalry going on here. But to go to the point where he just simply says, I know thy pride and naughtiness of heart. Remember the chapter before this? God said he's the only one that could know the what? The heart. Eliab saying, hey, I, I know what's in your heart. No, he doesn't. He's not God. 
He's kind of thinking he's in the place of God and he's upset that you have one who's actually standing up for God and declaring, is there not something to stand for? Is there not a cause? You have Eliab who is working as an opposing force against David in this story. I mean, Saul's really not one that's opposing David as you look at the story. It's his brother who's the real problem here. But as you look at this story, you could say this about David as a character, that he is devoted to God. Okay, he is one that you go throughout and you see the stories that are going on and he's simply saying, how could you have one who is standing up against God, who is standing up against the living God? In fact, if you read the story through, and it's time we have not done this, but if you read the story through, you go from verse 1 to verse number 26, and there has been no mention of God, the Lord, or anyone to the point when David actually comes in and says, which you find in verse 26, David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to this man that killeth his Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I mean, he's just simply saying this. You've got this Philistine over here that worships false gods, and by his life he's displaying this, these ones that don't live and don't have life. But here's this one, uh, the, here's one who is holding up the fact that there's a living God. He really truly does exist. He really does do things. I mean, we've gone the whole story and nothing has been said about God until this point where David shows up. You kind of go, okay, so he is one who's devoted to God. Uh, he is one. I, I, the story that is said by David when he appears before Saul, look down at verse number 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him uh, because of him, Goliath. Thy servant will go fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth. He a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. There came a lamb, a bear, took out of the lamb out of the flock. Verse 35, And went out after him, smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose again against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing that he hath defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, David said, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. Now, I will say this. With his devotedness to the Lord, Saul gets a little bit of gumption. Because you see his statement there in verse 37, Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. May Jehovah go with thee. So you have these four characters that are playing a role in this and all of them have their part. And so as the, the author is writing through this, you have the contrast of the three individuals opposed to one, David, Goliath, Saul, Eliab opposing David. But you also see in the story a contrast of equipment. See, when you look at the story, you have a very detailed account of what Goliath is armed with. 
In fact, it's probably in ancient uh, writings one of the most detailed descriptions of the armament of an individual of what he's wearing. You read this, you find that it says in verse number four, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in his span. He had an helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. Now you go, yeah, okay, I know shekels right away. Now that's a measurement of weight I use on a regular basis when I weigh out my coins. No. Uh, what that would be is when you talk about the weight of the coat is uh, 5,000 shekels, it would be about 125 pounds. And that's the kind of metal that he's wearing over the front and his back and what he's wearing to protect him. Uh, verse 6, he had greaves of brass upon his leg and a target of brass between his shoulders shoulders and you say what's this word target of brass they figured out that it probably means he's got a very large sword or a javelin between his shoulder blades so he's got something to throw and then it says this verse 7 the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam ever gone to old uh, places and they have something about the size of the piano and you have this beam that goes through it and all the strings are coming off of it that's what we're talking about. He's got something that size that he is using as his, sword, as his spear. And then it simply says this. It says that the weight of the spearhead was 600 shekels of iron. You go, what's that? It's 15 pounds. It's like a bowling ball. You know, most, you know, choose 10 and 12, but if you've got a real bowling ball, it's usually 15 or 16 pounds. That's about the weight that he has just on the tip of the spear that he has and so he has this and then he has one that is bearing a shield before him so he's actually got someone taking his shield in front of him and you go why did you have a, have a shield like that because it worked like a door and that's kind of the description here he's got something that he can hide behind that protects him uh, about the size of a regular door and one guy is just simply carrying that for him to run and hide behind so when you read the equipment, you kind of go, wow. Anybody reading that's going, this is incredible. In fact, he's got weapons of iron. You go, why is that important? Because it's more stronger than brass. I mean, he's got the best of equipment, and you're just looking at this and going, okay, this is one who cannot be defeated. He is a champion. He is a hero. And you look in the story, and the only other descriptions that you have of armor are when you read about Saul. And Saul tries to handle or hand in verse 38, David, this weaponry. Saul armed David with his armor. He put a helmet of brass. So you're already looking at this, the brass helmet in comparison to iron. Okay, you know, worse equipment. Uh, he wore a coat of mail. Uh, he tried to gird the sword uh, upon his armor. And David essayed to go, but he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And he takes them off. And Saul goes, here, use my equipment. It's the best that we've got. And David just kind of looks at it, tries it on, and goes, I haven't proved this. I don't, I don't know how to use this. I mean, it's what he's saying. I've never tested this out. I, 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 don't, I don't use these type of things. 
And so here you have two things crafted by mankind, uh, but then you talk about what David has. And as you look at when he uh, goes out, verse uh, 40, he took a staff in his hand, uh, chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. When you look at this, somebody has commented on the fact these are all God-made equipment. Stones out of a brook, staff of wood, and a slingshot probably made out of some leather. And you kind of go, he's armed with that. So already as you read the story and you just come from this perspective, not knowing the end. And that's, that's the problem with this. We know the end already. But anybody reading this would go, oh, this is, this is bound for failure here. Here you've got the best that man can offer and a person who's going out with a stick and some stones. It's not going to go well. That's the intention here. The author is just saying there is all sorts of opposition to David when he goes out from people that should be supporting him and the enemy wouldn't support him or the equipment that he has. He's got no chance. But where the, that all changes is in the contrast of attitude between David and everyone else in the army of Israel. I mean, you look at uh, when it comes to the response when Goliath comes out and begins to yell at the army, and he does this day in and day out. Look at verse 11. Nation of Israel hears this. Verse 11, and when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and what? Greatly afraid. You say, what is the problem for the nation of Israel? They have a fear of man. They have a fear of man. They've taken on the characteristics of their leader. Because at this point, as you've gone through the book of 1 Samuel, you've had this leader who's always afraid of what people think. He starts off by hiding uh, in the luggage on the day he's supposed to be anointed. He is, uh, does seem to win some battles initially, but then he's afraid of what the people will think. And he's afraid that if he doesn't keep back certain of uh, the possessions that they've taken in battle, that the people will be upset. He's got a fear of men. The nation of Israel has taken this on. I mean, verse 24, look at what happens when David shows up and he sees this. Verse 23, as he talked to the people in the army of Israel, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. See, you can do all sorts of things you shouldn't do when you're afraid of people. Things that you would never do otherwise as a follower of God or an individual like that. And what you have here is people looking at a man and going, I'm afraid. I'm frightened. And they run. But the exact contrast to that is verse 25. David is, well, excuse me, verse 26. 
David is simply making this statement, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Have we forgotten there's a God in heaven? You go, what does he do? He has a fear of the Lord. See, what's the fear of the Lord? It's something that you find in the writings of David's son quite often, but you also find it in the Psalms. But it's simply this, is that you're a person who believes that God truly does exist, or truly exists, and that as you live out your life, you act out as if he truly does exist. That's the fear of the Lord, just simple terms. Believing exists and then acting as if he truly does exist. And here David is saying, well, why are there not people responding to this man? Because we have a God who lives. He really does exist. Isn't anybody going to respond on the basis of that kind of knowledge? David has a fear, but it's the fear and awe of the right person. The nation of Israel is in awe of this man standing out in the field, a size that they've never seen before. But on David's side, he is looking at this man and linking about him in comparison to the living God who created the universe. Who controls, and you think about this, this is a young man who had the opportunities to sit out and look at the stars. And some of the Psalms that he probably uh, wrote talking about God. As you think about one of the, the Psalms in Psalm chapter 8, and right now I'm, I'm going to it because it's slipping me the exact verbiage that is there. But David made this statement in Psalm 8 and verse 3, When I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And you think about the whole context of that psalm, it starts with this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And the psalm ends with that statement, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how great is thy name in all of the earth. So when David comes to this, and you look at David, when it comes to his attitude, he is not afraid of men. He is afraid of God, but it's a fear that is an awe of God and what he's capable of in comparison to this man who is on this battlefield. And the contrast then gets even grander when the face-to-face confrontation takes place because you have a contrast in the statements made by Goliath and David. In verse 41, you have this statement as David comes out with his staff and his sling and the five stones that he has in his shepherd's bag there. Verse 41, the Philistine came on and drew near unto David and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now you ought to realize this, that right then and there, a person reading the story of the nation of Israel would recall the fact that there was this statement made to Abraham that his descendants, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. I mean, that is being played here when you have this statement of cursing a son of abraham verse 44 the philistine said to david come to me and i will give thy flesh into the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field 
I mean, really what is being contrasted here, when you get to the battle, it's a very short uh, description of what happens. When you read in the Hebrew, this confrontation, the statements back and forth uh, of David, and you read what David says, his speech takes 63 words, while when you get to the actual combat, it's only 36 words in the Hebrew. Uh, You're saying, what is the author trying to emphasize? This statement of David It's not so much that he kills Goliath. He's setting a stage for this one to make a statement about his God. Look at verse number 45. You have this Goliath. He calls on his God. He curses God's people. But verse 45 on the other side, you have David said to the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Now, he doesn't say, I'm coming with some stones that I'm going to hit you with. You know, I got this stick I can hit you in the kneecap with. You know, he doesn't say any of this. He says, I'm coming to you, and I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. He's the one that you've defied. He's the one that you've made all sorts of statements about, and he truly does live. You need to know that. And you continue the statement as you go to verse 46. He says this, This day will the Lord deliver thee in mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day and to the fowls of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You say, that's quite a statement. He's saying, I want the whole world to know there's a God. And besides that, he reemphasizes that statement, verse 47, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword or with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And then you have the battle where, yes, Goliath gets hit right in the forehead, uh, just above his nose, and the stone sinks in, and he falls over, and David takes his sword out and chops his head off. And feeds his carcass to the birds. And you say, what do you mean by that? That was the worst thing a body could do. You never wanted to be unburied. That was the worst thing a person happened. And that's what happened to Goliath's body. So you get to the end of the story and you say, is it about David David facing his giant and defeating Goliath? The answer is no. Say, what's the story about? Well, I'll, I'll give you the theme. Okay, and you can write it down and you can perhaps word it differently. And I'm sure there would be others that would word it differently. But I'm just simply going to say this. What you find in this story is this, is that God sets a stage for his chosen leader to display his faith before or faith in God before all men. That he has the opportunity to display his God. Because it's from this point on, the nation of Israel might not have known who David is, but now they know who he is, and they already know what he's saying because he's already declared, I'm a follower of God, I believe that he is able to do certain things, and he is lifting up his God, not, look at what I'm able to do. He says, look at what my God's capable of doing. And what you have in the story is that God takes and sets the stage. As I have left this picture here, you have this stage 
bleachers on one side, mountainside on one side, mountainside on the other. You have all these army uh, soldiers and armies sitting there, and they're observing this. They're hearing this because it's a natural amphitheater. So they're all hearing this, and they hear what goes on between these two and the statement that's made by Goliath and the statement that's made by David. And you go, well, what's the point? That David's God truly lives. That he really does exist. And what God does is that he takes his individual and sets him on a stage and says, this is a man that's after my own heart. You ought to take a look at him because he's a follower of me and believes I really, truly exist. And you kind of go, oh, okay, that makes sense that what God oftentimes does is that if you have people that follow after him with their whole heart and are ones that follow him, there are oftentimes this, where God will put them on a stage to magnify him, to glorify him, for people to see him, to work as that the telescope, to magnify something that might be small in people's eyes, but is truly large. They can see this. God does this on many occasions. For David, it's because he is willing to, in this situation, display that he's always been following after God's own heart. And God says, okay, I'm going to use this person to be my sounding piece, to magnify me. And so that's what this story is about. Not that David killed Goliath, though that is a side note on this. It's that God is looking for people that are sold out for him and are willing to declare that he's God and magnify him amongst the nations and the peoples to the congregation supposedly of the godly, the nation of Israel, and to others outside of that, that they would know what God is like. And you kind of go, okay, so that's kind of what God would want us to do as leaders, is to magnify him in whatever situation we're in. That's correct. That's the right outcome and thinking about this story not just merely facing your giants but really being a person who's face to face with god all the time and that you're willing to declare who he is to the nations and to the people lord we thank you for this story a one who boldly in opposition to even people on his own side who were afraid and running and and panicked and worried That he was willing to stand because he knew you really did exist that you were the living god that you are one who called the universe into existence that you created every human being on the face of this earth everything that's here you've done that and that you have complete power as sovereign as king of the universe that you really truly do exist Lord, you may call us to a stage this week as individuals to have the opportunity to declare who you are, to magnify for people who cannot see him and are ignoring him, for us to be able to magnify you. Lord, may we be individuals who have walked with you and have had a heart after you so that when we come to those situations, we stand for you that we lift you up so people can see not us but to see our God to see our Savior to know him because we boldly proclaim 
we are on the Lord's side. And he is a great God. So may we have that kind of boldness as we go throughout this week. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.